0: today is july 20th 2014 our message today is the overthrow of god's house the overthrow of god's house turn to jeremiah 7 and yell there when you are there come on you're getting there who's still there who's who's on their way Jeremiah was not a bullfrog. He will be a good friend of ours, though. I would like to encourage you with a thought that our day is not all that different than the day that Jesus was born into. The day that Jesus was born into, there is what was called the slaughter of the innocents. All children, two years old and down, were being killed. Not all that different than the day that Moses was born into. In Jesus' day, a wicked leader named Herod showed a flagrant disregard for God's law. And John the Baptist was in the minority when he called him out on it. People were entertained by John, but very few stood up and spoke the message he was speaking. The masses were without shepherds. There were shepherds who were feeding themselves, but not feeding God's flock. There were shepherds who loved their long tassels, who loved the best seats at the table, but they did not help the broken, lame, and injured enter into the kingdom of God. In Jesus' day, the temple that was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations had been reduced to a place for money changers. Jesus' day and our day look exactly alike when you put it like that. We murder our children in this land. Our leaders show a flagrant disregard for God's law. The masses are shepherdless, although there are shepherds everywhere. Powerful weaklings with loud voices and small hearts. And the temple of God has largely been turned into a for-profit business that possesses no actual profits. Jeremiah prophesied about these days. He was facing an obstacle in his day and he was prophesying also about an obstacle in a day to come. And in the seventh chapter of Jeremiah, starting with these words, the first verse, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there... Proclaim this message. Where was he to proclaim it? At the Lord's house. Understand, we can watch whatever news program you like to watch. We can proclaim over and over and over that the problem with our country is on the other side of the political aisle, on the other side of the socioeconomic divide, or on the other side of a race line that someone created to divide us. But when God wants to fix a problem, He starts with His house. He does not start with the world. He starts with His house. The great Russian author Tolstoy said, Everyone dreams of changing the world. No one starts with themselves. If we must start with God's house, then we must start with God's people. Are you God's people? Then when we purge idolatry from us we will in effect purge it from God's house. And when it's purged from God's house, it will cause revival in our land. We need not fall prey to the idea that we are so very right and outside these walls they are so very wrong. Their ills are our fault because we are the sons of God meant to declare the light of the gospel to the world. We evidently have not declared it loud enough, long enough, bright enough. Because in our time, people have gone to sleep in the light. Jeremiah's day was not much different. They claimed to walk with God, but their hearts were far from them. Isaiah said the same thing almost 200 years earlier. So God said, you go stand at my door and I want the message to come forth. Listen to what it was. Start in verse 3. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. It is high time in the house of God that we got this straight. You cannot have the cake and eat it too. You cannot stand in God's presence and expect to live in His presence without reforming your ways. He didn't just say, reform your ways. He said, reform your ways and your actions. Church, in our day, we think our ways have nothing to do with our actions. We're pretty darn convinced that if we say we believe a thing, it doesn't matter whether it shows up in our actions or not. Intellectually, we might know better than this, but we insulate ourselves with thinking the right things. What good do your thoughts do the dying world around you? In 1st keep your finger in Jeremiah 7. Could we put on the screen for the congregation 1st Chronicles 28, starting in verse 9? We will be coming back to Jeremiah. This is Solomon and David. David is speaking to Solomon and he says, and you, my son, Acknowledge the God of your Father and serve Him with wholehearted devotion. What kind of devotion does God want? Whole heart. heart. Not a part of you reserved for your favorite football team. Not a part of you reserved for your favorite carnal movie. Not a part of you reserved for your favorite hobby. He wants your whole heart. And when He gets the whole thing, He very well may allow you to love music. He very well may make you a wonderful artist. He very well may cause a renaissance in your very life, but those things do not come before him. Oh, church, we learn to say whole heart, but it's almost like we forget what it means. We think whole heart means most of my heart or the larger part of my heart. Who are the men in the house? Somebody tell me if you're a man in the house. Do you want all of your wife's affection or will you settle for part of it and some of it belonging to your neighbor? Oh. Come on, how much of it do you want? Oh. Do you think God is a punk? He's not going to accept an 80-20 split. He's holy. He's righteous. He burns with a holy fire. He burns, actually, the book of James says, with jealousy. For all of your heart. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him. With wholehearted devotion. And with a willing mind. Why do you serve him? Do you serve him because you're scared if you don't? Do you serve him because you have a reputation that you want to be viewed as godly? Why do you serve him? See, the willing heart wakes up and does not say, what do I have to do for God today? What will he require of me? What does he demand today? The willing heart wakes up and says, oh my God, I love him and I cannot wait to work for him today. When you go to Walmart, you're not buying milk anymore. You're on a mission for a soul. And the milk just happens to get in the basket on the way home too. We've learned to talk such a good game. But how pervasive is your love for him? How much does it permeate your workplace? How much does it permeate your soul? When you get home, can you not wait to worship him? Or was that something you just did at church? You know, uh, whew, glad that was, a boy, we had, we burned it up today. Now let's go indulge the flesh in every possible way. Oh, come on, church. I'm telling you, there's a message for the house of God. Too often we stand in the house of God and try to preach to those who aren't listening. We're preaching to those outside. If we started with ourselves, if we had a personal revival, we would have a corporate revival. If we had a corporate revival, we would catch the world on fire for Jesus. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to beat you up. But sometimes the word pricks my soul. I'm not where I want to be yet. I think there's still higher ground to be obtained and I want it. I'm going to tell you the truth. I want it and I'm going to have it because he left it up to me. He said, if you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, if you hunger, are you listening to me? If you hunger for righteousness, not if you're mildly amused by it, not if occasionally you can tolerate a healthy dose of it, if you hunger for it. I don't want to live like an ordinary human being anymore. I don't want to go through my life like a regular guy. I only have so many days, so many hours to make an impact for the king. And I, I'm i going to. For the Lord searches every heart and he understands every motive behind the thoughts. What a statement. Somebody say, that's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. He doesn't just understand what you're thinking. He knows Why? You think the way you do. It's a funny thing when God starts to reveal hearts. You find out that much of your religious duty is really cleverly disguised idolatry. I was sitting in a church service and a man who was supposed to be an elder was passing out pictures of him doing good things. And I thought, eh, there you go. Get all the reward for it you can now. It wasn't long he had split the church right down the center. He had a devilish, flattering tongue. And I really disliked him, if i would be honest. Disliked him in a great way. But when we do things that we say are for the king of kings and we really do it so that our brothers will admire us, is it any different? Your brothers will admire you when God does. Are you hearing me? When you glow with the Holy Ghost, when your face radiates like Stephen on that day, when you come down from meeting with God in your prayer closet and you refuse to put a veil over yourself to cover up the glory, they'll admire you, I promise. We fight for the wrong things, church. If you seek Him, He will be found by you, but if you forsake Him, He will reject you forever. This is nowhere to be found in today's theology. And some would say, you don't understand, Eric. This is one monarch talking to another monarch. Don't forget, friend, they're human beings. And God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is willing to forgive. He is willing to receive all of those things. But don't think that you can't fall beyond recovery because you can. Some of you play so close to the edge of the field, I worry for your soul's. You dabble in things that were meant for demons and not sons of God. And the more you do it, the more it seems acceptable to you, like Samson playing in a vineyard. From the time before he was born at his conception, he's not even allowed to be around grapes. What's he doing in a vineyard? And the same could be said of many internet habits in this church. Oh, if the church of God got right, I told you I'd make some of you mad. Be glad your browser history is not on that screen. Anger might turn to shame. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you. Understand with the same stern warning comes a warm, loving acceptance. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you. Oh, church, the Lord has chosen you. He has chosen you. He has a stern warning for you because he's chosen you. He's not standing at the gate of someone else's house proclaiming this. He's standing at the gate of his house proclaiming, I've chosen you and what are we supposed to do? Build up the body. Build the temple. Chosen you to build the temple as a sanctuary. Come on now. Young people, you'll get me here. Say, do work." Work, work. Come on, time to do work. He said, be strong and do the work. We don't have time to do anything except strengthen ourselves and do the work. So, this would be a great thing, young people, for your spiritual palate. Now, by the way, sometimes I say young people, I mean old people too. I just feel better scathing them, and I hope you're getting it too. Fair enough. Jennifer said, everybody, 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 do the work. Here's a great test for your spiritual palate. Does this edify? Does this strengthen? If I were a spiritual bodybuilder, is this what I'd put in my body? Or am I feasting on junk food expecting strength? Ask yourself, with what you're consuming in your entertainment, what you're consuming in your leisure, what you're consuming, ask yourself, does it edify me? Does it leave me stronger, taller, more powerful in the kingdom? Or does it lessen me? Because the king of kings has chosen you. And he said, be strong. Or if you like it, be strong. And do work. The work that God has called us to do requires strength. There ought to have been an amen in the house for that. The work that God has called us to do requires strength. It's not for mamby-pamby milksups. It's not for, it's not for the weak. It requires strength. And you're going to have to get it from God. And the most militant of God's warriors, strength still comes from joy. If we can't do it with a smile on our face, we ought not do it. And friends, I want to tell you from personal experience, you can look at somebody and smile and say, friend, I'm sorry, it looks like you're on your way to hell. I wish you'd repent. And you can do it with a smile. Say, sometimes God wants us to weep, then weep with a smile. But we have too long been portrayed as legalistic and mean. The cure for that is to be in the Lord's strength and joy and do the work he called you to do, not compromising holiness in the slightest, but not at all losing your joy. Jesus Christ went to the cross. It's glorious to us. How glorious would it be if it was required of you today? But he did it for the joy that was set before him. So we're going to be strong in the Lord. We're going to do it with smiles on our faces and we're going to do the work. You know, when you think of motives and thoughts, it might be time to consider our motive behind our thoughts, our thoughts behind our ways and our ways that are behind our actions. There's a disease in the church and the enemy is pretty subtle. God's house has a purpose and we cannot work from impure motives, carnal thoughts, worldly ways and emaciated actions and still assume that we have God's approval. John Bunyan put a line in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, drawing off of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. He said, it has split hooves, but does it chew the cud? He said, what on earth does that have to do with? He was talking about Christians that speak well, but live poorly, or men who try to live well, but it's not based upon being at the feet of Jesus. Jesus. If you want to be acceptable, put away the argument between faith and deeds. There's no conflict. The animal to be acceptable before the Lord must have split hooves and chew the cud. To be acceptable, you must have a faith that produces deeds. And if your deeds are not evidence of your faith, then they're not worthwhile deeds. The way Galatians 5, 6 put it is the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I think when brother Fabian came, he said, love looks a certain way. It has a shape. It has a form. When you look at first John, the first chapter, the sixth, fifth, fifth and sixth verse, you find out that if you walk in the light as he is in the light, sixth verse, if you walk in the light, as he, uh, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Next verse, seven. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Walking with the Lord God does what with fellow man? It puts you in fellowship with each other. See, when we're both striving in the same direction, suddenly we have all things in common in Christ. Your brother might do it a little different than you. His his vision might be a little different than yours, but you glorify God nevertheless for His vision because you're both pulling the chain in the same direction. Amen. For a sacrifice to be acceptable to God, for it to be something that you can consume in your spiritual palate, it needs to have split hooves and chew the cud. There's a two-fold requirement, friends. Charles Finney said it this way, doctrine that cannot be expressed practically is practically worthless. It's true. If what you believe cannot be demonstrated in your practical life, then what good is it? Yeah. to Entertain you to intellectually stimulate you. Much of today's doctrine is practically worthless. It's time that we return to some core principles. Go back with me to Jeremiah 7. Let us look again at what the message is that's being proclaimed at the gate. In Jeremiah 7, here comes verse 5. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood. I want you to catch this. He speaks of justice. Justice is what one man does to another. He speaks of the foreigner, the alien. This is like missions. He speaks of the orphan, the widow. When we're looking at these things, these are all outward expressions of God's love. When are these the topics of our sermons? When are these the focus of, of people's actions? No, today it's how to be a better you. Today it's how to be fat, happy, and blessed. God's justice is not on our radar anymore. The foreigner is barely on our radar anymore. It's relegated to somewhere between 3 and 5% of the strongest church's budgets. The orphan is someone else's problem or the ward of the state. And the widow, unless she's got an estate, nobody cares. Church, this is a message for the church. We have to redirect ourselves. This is what James calls pure and faultless religion. I want you to notice the similarity between 500 B.C. and today. He says, if you really change your ways and your actions, how many people? have a Christianity that has no practical expression in their life or it's the smallest part of their life and deal with one another justly, changing your ways changes the way you deal with other people. If you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless and the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. In the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive and worthless words. I don't even have a cable subscription. The only TV in my house plays Disney movies for the children. And I'm pretty skeptical of those. Most of my Christian TV experience comes from being in another country where they put a satellite on top of a grass hut in the hope to be educated in the ways of Christ. And when I see the absolute refuse that spews across the television in the name of Jesus on so-called Christian TV, I've never seen more deceptive and hollow words. I want you to be sure that if you are struggling to eat, but God is feeding you and you are rich in faith, Naming and claiming the drug dealer's Cadillac is of no benefit to you. Not at all. Praying that God would rain gold dust upon your village is of no benefit to you at all. I could go on and on forever, but I don't need to because I'm pretty sure that you know it. When we look at this, the most indicting part is verse 10 and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Sometimes Christians are the absolute most guilty of describing a life that is completely backslidden, dry and devoid of God's presence or any leading in any direction and then saying, but I know I'm saved. Who told you? The Spirit of God? Who told you? Who declared it to you? Did you get your USDA stamp the day that you got saved like a piece of meat running through a factory? Why don't we go back to infant baptismal certificates then? Who told you? Because the book of Romans says His Spirit will bear Spirit will bear witness. His Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you are a son of God. Without that bearing of witness, I don't care what your doctrine is. If the fruit on the tree looks like a lemon tree, then... You can tell me all day long that it produces grapes and I'm just going to say you're deceived. I have heard some of the most abominable things come out of Christians' mouths only to be followed by the words, but I know I'm saved. I have a gambling addiction, a pornography addiction, cheated on my wife twice last year, but I know I'm saved. Really? How does that work? Which Bible is it you're reading? Oh, you're not... Uh, you got that Friday kind of Christianity. Well, God bless you for that. Let's see how it stands up on the day of judgment when earth and sky flee from His presence. Where is the preaching that says the righteous barely stand in the judgment of God? Where is the preaching that says God is a holy and just God and there is only one way into His presence? That penalty had to fall on His Son and you deserved it but it fell on Him and now don't you trample His blood underfoot. Justice. Foreigner. Orphan. Widow. Hardly the topics of Charisma News magazine. Hardly the topics that dominate. Walk into a Christian bookstore, friends, and you tell me, Justice, Foreigner, Orphan, Widow, are those the books that are selling? The Every Day is Friday Gospel, the Greedy gain Gospel, the God Can Be Mocked Hyper Grease Grace Gospel. They all say we're safe. Unless, of course, we're not. What happens if you are not actually as safe as you have been led to believe that you are? How about verse 11? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. If we meet for some reason other than to glorify Jesus Christ, if we meet for some reason other than to proclaim the message to the nations, to uphold God's justice, to take care of widows and orphans if we meet for some reason other and I take your money at the end of the meeting? Am I not just using religion as a leverage to pacify your conscience and line my pocket? Jeremiah said it. Jesus said it. And it's happening Today, we are safe. When we accept offerings that the Lord, for the Lord, and then don't use them to advance the justice of God, the heart of God for the nations, the concern of God for the poor, we've made God's house a den of thievery. It turns God's house into a tool of extortion and I'm telling you that he will not tolerate it. Verse 12, he warns the church world. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Judgment begins with the house of God. A stricter judgment is given those who teach. These are all well founded in the Word of God. If judgment begins with the house of God, if a stricter judgment is given to those who teach, how careful must we be to have the heart of God? Are you concerned about the justice of God? See, it breaks my heart. During the service, I did not want to move on because there are captives in our midst. They're victims of spiritual violence. Devil is dancing upon their consciences. They're manipulated like puppets on a string. The only thing sadder than being a captive is being a captive while standing in the midst of the most freeing power on the planet and not taking advantage of it. But all too long, we've been satisfied to let people fill chairs without having hearts that are filled. I'm going to get off of pastors for a minute. Before I do that, let me just say that there's been a long line of this. They have Judas as their father. They have Gehazi as their grandfather. They have Lot's wife as their great-grandmother, and Demas as their brother. They should have learned a message from the ministry of Judas. Even Judas recognize the hypocrisy of his way. Look at Matthew 27, starting in verse 5. Say, there when you were there. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. What was that money for? This is the price he got for denying Christ. He had religious ideas. He had religious motives. He was one of the twelve. He shared in the ministry of the twelve. He went out on healing campaigns. He went out on evangelistic campaigns. But in the end, he valued 30 pieces of silver more than Jesus. So Judas threw the money bag into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. Next verse. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It's against the law to put this into the treasury. It's blood money. They're the ones that gave it to Judas. So they went out and bought a field, guys, for foreigners. That's about where missions offerings usually come from. Just the leftovers, whatever we weren't able to spend on ourselves. The priorities of Christ must be our priorities. Understand the ministry of Judas teaches us something, and it's such an easy message. You can have the money bag, or you can have Christ. But you can't have the money bag and have Christ you want to follow Jesus, his priorities must be yours in every area of your life. Judas gave up Christ and after he gave up Christ in exchange for what his flesh wanted, what he wanted, what he wanted, he tried to throw that away realizing it was worthless. How sad it was for him that it was too late. What happens if that thing that you've put in front of Jesus just needed to see that scantily clad girl dance a certain way. You realize what that's the spirit of? That's the same spirit that killed John the Baptist. You just needed to. What if it's the last moment and you're not able to be granted the gift of repentance? Our king wants a holy church. And there's a reason he wants a holy church. When you're a distracted church, when you're in love with the world, it's very hard to have his priorities and die for them. It's very hard to care about your fellow man if you're consumed with what you can get from him. Very hard to care about your fellow man when you're not right with your God. But when we get right with our God, it makes us care whether each and every soul in this building walks out of here freer, Fuller, more powerful, right with God. He makes you care. Suddenly, you start to plan events that even your family comes to and mixes with the church. And why? Because you care what happens to them. Suddenly, you go into enemy territory and you go to that reunion that you never would have gone to before in the hopes that what you have will be seen by them. You show up at the funeral. That everybody is there and they're overwhelmed with grief and you get to dance in glory because they've achieved the goal of their faith. And you're jealous. Church, we have to pick up God's priorities. I'm very proud. I'm going to brag on you for a minute before we commence to spanking. This little church raised $2,500 for Fabian Gretsch. And it came from about 90% of the church body. I love that. And just before it, we raised $1,000 for Dennis Pence. (laughs) Because we love the nations and we care about the foreigners. Now, if we compare ourselves with the churches around us, the Bible says we're not wise. Our comparison is Christ. The last couple of years, you know, and I've bragged about, we gave 40% of our gross revenues to missions, and I am still happy about that. But you gotta have a split hoof and chew the cut. That is an amazing deed. But what happens if those deeds simply become routine? What happens if we are no longer giving because we're experiencing revival and want others to experience revival that simply become our way. Now, I know I'm a crazy pastor. Most people would just shut up and take the offering. My real hope is that Jeremiah's message would land upon us. God has blessed us for one reason and one reason only. We have His priorities. If we ever cease to have His priorities, then His presence leaves the tabernacle. And you know what you do as an organization? When you go from uh, a man to a movement to a machine to a monument, when that happens, when the great movement of yesteryear is gone, do you know what you do? You build prettier buildings to disguise the fact that God is not a part of it anymore. You get lights and smoke and whatever else you can do to create the right atmosphere. You know what the king wants? He just wants people who have his priorities. He just wants the heart that wakes up in the morning and says, out of a wholehearted devotion with a, with a willing obedience, I want to care about the foreigner, Lord. Give me a heart for the foreigner. I want, Lord, to care about your justice. It's not right that this person is crippled with a demonic disease. I want your justice. It's not right that they haven't heard about the gospel and I've swam in it all my life. I want your priorities. That's a heart and a life that he can bless. Every once in a while, something remarkable happens. Turn with me to John 2. Say there when you're there. Is there anybody in this room that wants to trade Jesus for a money bag? Then let us just stand at the gate of God's house and go ahead and say we repudiate that message. We're not going to participate in a gospel of greed. If I give and the Lord happened to give back to me more, that's just simply a chance to give it again. I do not want to reduce my God to a MasterCard bonus point program. I think it's deplorable. I think it's of the devil. And in the name of Jesus, it's no gospel at all. Now we're done with that. I can move on to something else, right? Yeah? We're not going to serve Christ out of selfish motives. We're not going to do it. If He gives to you, He gives to you for whom? Their benefit. Whatever you have at your disposal is for them, not for you. Pour out your life in His service. This is the heart of God. All right, John 2, something amazing. Y'all help me shift gears, right? You help me shift gears? We're going to shift gears now. John 2, something amazing. There was a time I was in Honduras, and after eight days without a shower, man, when I got a shower, it was a special thing. I loved it. It was three minutes of ecstasy because the water was warm. The fact that Judah got a shower was even better. (laughs) Here comes John 2. Let's talk about a cleansing. In John 2, starting in verse 12. After this, he went down. uh, Let's do 11. I can't skip glory here. This, the first of His miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed His... He revealed His... He revealed His... What's supposed to fill the temple, friends? He revealed His glory. And His disciples put their faith in Him. After this, He went down to Capernaum with His mother and brothers and disciples. They stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts He found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. What should you have found in God's temple? His glory. What did He find? He found a business. He found a duly registered Tax-exempt, appropriately administrated, nonprofit for-profit business. They was no longer concerned about those coming in meeting God. They were concerned about how many came in and what the exchange rate was and what they could get from them and move them out the door. That was never God's heart. In the name of doing God's work, we cannot lose God's heart. Now the rationale says, well, but the more money they had, the more they could do. Friends, I have never found that to be true. We've always done more with less. I know many, many people that are saying when they get enough money, they'll go do missions. I've never had the money before the mission, ever. In fact, right now, I stand before you telling you I will go to Romania. We will teach on marriage and marriages will be saved. I will, that'll probably be September. In November... I will go to Peru, drag my fat body up and down mountains, preach the gospel in places it's never been preached before, and I don't have the money for either one and have no idea how it's going to come. That will not stop us. It never has. Those who wait till God funds it before they are going to do it have eliminated faith from their process. And so they prepare for 40 years but never actually do. I found out God's not all that limited in resources. And if the people of God don't do what the people of God are supposed to do, then watch out. The sky will grow dark with ravens flying in our provision. God will fund his work. It happens. I don't need to appeal to fear or greed. It happens. Because he cares about the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. He cares about the justice of God. He will find a way for it to happen. But I want to be one that is easily found by God to make it happen. Is that fair enough? Do you want somebody else to do it or do you want to say, here I am? Do you want somebody else to do all of the work of God and then you and, and then you just somehow slip into the kingdom, maybe through a back door, an open window? And what would you tell the men as you stood there? You stand next to Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samson. What would you have to share for an eternity? Yeah, I sat on my salvation for 30 years. My butt got wide and my heart got small. What would you tell them? These men overturned kingdoms for their God. What would you tell them? I want to encourage you to dare to dream for the king. And don't put it off till tomorrow if you can take a step today. You believe... How many of you have ever prayed for rain? Then carry an umbrella. You ever prayed for a baby? Then go buy baby clothes. You pray for the nations. Put their pictures on your wall and buy your ticket. You pray for souls. Go talk to lives. Let us put forward our feet of faith. He got to the temple and he expected to find glory because that's what God's temple is supposed to be full of. And instead... He found coins and money changers and overturned their tables. Look at verse 16. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Why? Because God doesn't like doves? How dare you? Can you imagine the king of kings says, how dare you? How dare you turn my father's house into a market? The buying and selling of pacification of souls. say, what's wrong? He's preaching out of the same Bible you are, Eric. Not really. But why why are you so worked up over it? I'm worked up over it because we're supposed to be about the justice of God. We're supposed to be about the liberation of foreigners, not the pacification of souls. You know when a man gets right? When he's scared, he's not. Are you hearing me? Is Brent the only one caught that? A man gets right with God when he's scared he might not be right. I hope to upset your apple cart because you've got a better chance of reforming your ways if you've considered your ways. This lie that says, oh, you once believed for a split second, well, that's all that was ever required of you, it declares that the starting line is the finish line. That's ridiculous. Where's the fight of faith? Where's the travailing in the kingdom? It can build grand cathedrals, but it does not change a life. Church, he said, how dare you? Let's consider something. John 1.18 Said no man had ever seen the Father at any time, but the one and only has made him known. You got me. What we're saying is that you weren't capable of comprehending Yahweh God. You couldn't take him all in. You couldn't grasp him. You couldn't. So he put himself in a package that you could you could look at. So so nowhere on the planet could you get and take in all the oceans. It just can't happen. If you stood as far away as the moon, you still can't see them all. You're not going to grasp it all. So he poured those oceans into a container. This is the very substance of God. It's the fullness of God. And when you look at him, it's what it's what God is like. Jesus actually went so far in John 5 as to say, I only do what I see my father do and I only say what I hear my father saying. Are are we tracking so far? Come on, somebody say, I'm with you, pastor. (laughs) Then what does God think of turning his house into a marketplace, an investment program? It ticks him off. It makes him angry. It doesn't make him angry where he goes home and quilts. It doesn't make him angry where he he shudders and walks off and prays. He sits down and makes a whip and says, I will not stand for my name, my reputation, and my house to be associated with this. I will not stand for it. Church, if he won't stand for it, then we shouldn't stand for it. Go on, girl, you're preaching better than I am. If he won't stand for it, why should we? There should be some overturning of tables. In the house of God, somebody should stand up and say, this is not him. This is not him. He don't want you to max out your credit card so he can build this new prayer tower. That's not him. His heart is for the oppressed. His heart is for those that had not heard. His heart is for the discouraged. And He is the most life-giving substance on the planet. How dare we use that as the draw and then fleece the people. Jesus says, get these out of here. How dare you turn My Father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, "Zeal for your house will consume... Me, I love that his disciples occasionally see him do something and go, "Wait, wait! Oh, it's written. Everything that he did was written. It's like a treasure hunt to find it. This particular one is written in Psalm sixty-nine. Let us turn there together. Sixty-nine, and I want to focus on verse eight. Say there when you were there. I am a stranger to my brothers." an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. This is what the disciples said was being fulfilled that day. <laughs> who was he a stranger to? His own mother's sons. I want you to get this. Sometimes even with church folk, you ought to look a little different. You ought to stand out a little bit. If you're zealous for what God's zealous for, it will distinguish you even among church folk. Because they're not always right. If they were, Israel would have voluntarily left Egypt. Sometimes it takes somebody that he raises up to provoke you to think differently, to provoke you to consider your ways, to convoke you for, provoke you for a different action. They remembered zeal for his house. Consumes me. Let me ask you, would your neighbor say, you know what, that brother is consumed with zeal for God's house. Would your neighbor say that about you? Then we got a ways to go. There's still higher ground to be be obtained. Until we are so zealous for the agenda of God that that's how we would be described, then there's no resting on our laurels. There are no laurels to have. We've only begun. There's nothing wrong with saying we're infants in the faith. I'm I'm proud. We we got a 14, 14, 12-year-old church. I'm proud of what we've accomplished. I still think we're about first-grade Christians. You know what that means? It means we we got the chance to grow up. If this was all there was, if we declare ourselves Ph.D. Christians... I might have condemned myself to never know a thing more than I know today. How sad would that be? Come on, church. Do you want to go further? There is a focus for God's house. You can find it in Isaiah 56. Turn with me to Isaiah 56 because I'm running out of time. In Isaiah 56, do you have a title above your... uh, Your chapter, anybody got one? Somebody bold enough? Shut it down. Salvation for who? Come on, that's off the chain. Salvation for... It's almost like we've forgotten that that's what this is about. Salvation for others. We think that we were the goal and expression of our own faith. I got saved. God's plan's done. We pray it when we say, get me out of here, Lord. Lord. Like, like the job's already done. Let's just go home. Any of you want to work with somebody like that? Boz, we're in the middle of an engine rebuild. And the way that we're going so far, we've managed to pull off an alternator. It's an older engine. So we're dissembling the, the carburetor. And uh, and I act like it's just done already. We haven't even got it all the way tore down, much less built back up, but it's done. And I'm like, <laughs> see ya. You want to work with somebody like that? In the kingdom, we can't act like it's done before we're even halfway through the project. Do you know how many people on this planet have not heard the gospel? There are more that have not heard the gospel than have. Are you hearing me? And then among those they say have heard the gospel, the question is which one? you know how many people are in India and China? That's half the world's population in two countries. I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's not a lot of Christianity there yet. We haven't even got to the Middle East in our discussion. Church, there's work to be done. We We need the agenda of God. Are you in Isaiah 56? This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. Don't you love how practical God's theology is? How do you maintain justice? Well, let me write a thesis on it. Do what is right. There we go. Done. I got my Ph.D. in maintaining justice. You maintain justice when you do what is right. That's just too complicated for us. Don't we hate simple solutions? Do what is right. As a Christian, I don't care how positionally justified you are. Well, I'm in Christ, so I'm righteous because Christ is righteous. Then do what Christ did. So the problem is the church says I'm in Christ, but we do not do what Christ did. You need to go back and look at that animal. It had two requirements, split hoof and chew the cud. A Christian has two requirements too. Your actions need to prove out what you say you believe. If you're in Christ, then you need to walk as Christ walked. And if you do not, then you might not be in Christ and that should frighten you, no matter what the six foot tall icicles have been telling you. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do you hear how practical this is? Keeps his hands from doing evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial name better than sons and daughters. Is God concerned for the nations? He's concerned enough that he will give Goyim, that's us crazy Gentiles, a better name than a natural son and daughter if we hold fast to him. That's not to disparage Israel. I love Israel. Obedience is required of both. Verse 6, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of buying and selling. Joy in my house of massive attendance. Joy in my house of the local bookstore. Joy in my house if I want to pawn off my latest CD. Joy in the house of come buy an anointed prayer cloth. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for just you. God's priority. He cares. He cares about every one of the nations. He, I, I, I've i traveled just a little bit. Y'all believe me? I don't got to go through that. I've traveled a little bit and and I'm amazed at something. You can go places and see seas of people. In some countries, the people are so thick on the streets that they just kind of merge together in a mass. In India, it looks like schools of fish. It's incredible. And he cares about every one of them. And he's manipulating the circumstances of their life so that they would reach out and find him. Do you care about them, though? See, do you want justice for them? He cares about the widow. He cares about the orphan. Dear God, He cares about the unborn. That goes without even saying. How do we live in a land where they're murdering our children and we're not all in jail? that's beside me. I, I, yeah. Did you know that Jesus cleansed the house in John 2? We just read it he cleansed it. And there is in Bible difficulties books. I'm sorry, Al, I'm walking a lot. Huh. I'll stand right here. In Bible difficulty books, they say, you know, maybe John arranged his book in theological order. Because it's Matthew 21 Jesus cleanses the temple. And John 2 clearly puts it at the time of a Jewish Passover. And Matthew 21 clearly puts it at the time of a Jewish Passover. They say, how could one come in the second chapter and the other come in the 27th chapter? Oh, who could know? Apparently, John took it out of order. And he, and he took it out of order because he just chose to emphasize it differently. That's, that's what the Bible difficulty book in our library says. Another one. An alternate, a variant opinion. It says, oh, no, no, there were were two cleansings of the temple and they're completely unique and that's clear because Jesus said different things and they did different things at them and thus they're unrelated. It's just two unrelated events. Which begs the question, do you even have the book of Leviticus in your Bible? Could we go to the 14th chapter? Message for the house of God. Pastor Sutherland, I'm not sure what we do when you're 49 minutes into a message and you're not halfway through, but we're going to find out. (laughs) Are you all in Leviticus 14? In Leviticus 14, let us start in verse 33. The Lord said to Moses, when you enter the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as your possession, and I put a spreading mildew in, the, in a house in the land, the owner of the house must go tell the priest, I've seen something that looks like mildew in my house. The priest is to order the house emptied before he goes in to examine the mildew so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. After this, the priest is to go in and inspect the house. He is to examine the mildew on the walls. And if it has a greenish or reddish Depressions that appear to be deeper than the surface of the wall, the priest shall go out the doorway of the house and close it up for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall return to inspect the house. If mildew has spread on the walls, his order, he is to order the house, I'm sorry, he is to order that the contaminated stones be torn out and thrown into an unclean place outside the town. He must have all the inside walls of the house scraped, and the material that is scraped off and dumped into an unclean place outside the town. Then they are to take other stones to replace these and take new clay and plaster the house. You can hold there. We're not going to read the next verse for a minute. See, there is a procedure. If you go into a man's house in Israel and there's something in it that might be what we would call a toxic mold... The first thing that has to be done is a recognition. God has put something in this home that is an outward sign of an inward problem. And it requires a priest. You have to go show yourself to the priest. One of the problems with the church and the reason that it is the way that it is is we don't believe any longer that you must go be accountable to another human being on the earth that represents God and say, I got something growing in me that shouldn't be here. We don't believe it anymore. Now we say it was between me and God and it was a private matter. We do this also in our relationships. Unmarried people do things that they say are between them and God and is a private matter. The problem is when you do something in private and you repent in private, it's easily put away in private and repeated in private. This is the very reason that God requires public accountability. Not just in marriage, but in the Christian walk. When we are publicly accountable for the things that we do and have done, we're held publicly accountable for walking rightly. So what well, we don't want to embarrass, sin is embarrassing. Damn the day that it's not. When sin is no longer embarrassing, then you have damned yourself. You have seared your conscience. So, But it's humiliating. It's supposed to be. It hurts. I know it killed my king. The weight of my sin alone sentenced him to death. Well, I feel very good about that. First thing that Jesus does is he empties the house. Can I tell you what this looks like in a, in a pastoral sense? So you come and you sit down, not with me, I'm not very smart, but P. Rose Wise, Pastor P. Rowe. Piro, Piro, whoa, oh, oh, let my people go. Um, you come and sit down with Pastor Piro. I'm not going to say who has done this, but this entire section. <laughs> <laughs> and you sit down with Pastor Piro, and you say, "See, see, w- w- what had happened was." Um, and Matthew's empty in the house. He says, "What you just said really is irrelevant." Uh, Let's not talk about... Why are you talking about your brother? It's you sitting in front of me. Let's deal with your issue. Well, uh, see, I I got this um, this this week. You mean sin? Sin. This is what it's like to empty the house. It avoids cross-contamination. See, emptying the house helps you settle in on the issue. Maybe even the issue behind the issue. It might even go so far as to get to the motive behind the thought rather than just the thought. See, it empties the house. It clears it out so that it's just you and the Lord standing there. Friends, there was a song we were talking about not long ago when all the music fades and all is stripped away. See, there is something empowering about (laughs) being left alone, discovered as naked, just like Adam before God. Say, well, what did you do? Lord i I did exactly what you told me not to do because that 's when you can be forgiven that 's when you can square things with your king, and until that 's done, you ought not feel right. Might be the Holy Ghost that you 're trying to dismiss when he emptied the house, they examined the mold let 's just call it selfishness for a minute. Is this skin deep? Was this just a momentary thing? I mean, sometimes, sometimes let's just say in traffic, an emerging situation. The very best does not come out of you. Every once in a while you'll identify something that needs to be killed, but it is not the defining attribute of your life. This might be something on the surface that needs to be scraped off. But God forbid that that not be a moment in time, but is a daily occurrence, and three or four times a day, and we're living in it habitually. This is something that goes beyond the surface of the wall, and every inside wall needs to be scraped. Is this not what the Bible says when it says those with circumcised hearts, those with circumcised ears? What we're doing is we're inviting the Lord into the situation, say, This is your house. Would you examine it? Lord, now that you're examining the house, I see things I didn't see before. I've been living in some devilish ways, and I'm so. I want to tell you nearly every time this pastor gets in the presence of God, I find mold where I thought there was nothing but good fruit. Turns out I'm not a great judge of my own character. I'm sure you are, though, of your own character, I mean. Some of you think too lowly of yourselves and others think way too highly of yourselves. That's why we want to invite the presence of God inside the house. He will properly evaluate it for it. But is it fair to say we got some scraping to do? Do you have some scraping to do? When you get the house right, the Lord will inhabit the house. When you get the house right, you don't need buying and selling and doves and oxen and money changers to inhabit the house because people will come to see the glory of the Lord in the house. Let me ask you, how many of you know William Seymour? William Seymour was the pastor of the Azusa Street Mission. How much money did he have? You don't know. What did his wardrobe look like. Let me ask you a better Did he drive an Escalade? People did not go to William Seymour's church to see William Seymour. It's said that he kneeled behind a milk crate and whispered out holiness because the glory of the Lord filled that place. I think most of our Ridiculous carnality is really a substitute For the glory of the Lord I want to tell you we're not as full of the glory of the Lord as I would like to be But it's not over yet We've not yet arrived, but I've not yet quit And I pray you haven't quit Yet either Let's scrape our walls Let's set aside some time period Of true fasting, true repentance Let us say, Lord, during this time period, I'm not going to bring one other thing into the house. I'm going to have your presence or nothing at all. I haven't yet listened to it, but I understand that Brother Brent preached about Mary and Martha, one who stood at the feet of Jesus and one who busied themselves doing the things that needed to be done and it's presented as an either or. And it's really an and in both but I'm not going to bring one more responsibility into my life till I've sat at the feet of Jesus and determined where his glory is and everything in my life will grow right out of that prayer life so that what Leonard Ravenhill said is true will be true in my life. A man will only be as big as his prayer life. Church, is there anybody who wants to go with me in this house clearing? Now, I mentioned that there was one at the first Passover mentioned in Jesus' ministry. That was in year number one. He, and there's three Passovers recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. And the, the second one occurred in the third year, uh, the third Passover. There's a reason for that. While we invite the Holy Spirit to scrape the inside walls of our house, let us consider verse 43 of Leviticus 14. And you see that there is more than one clearing of a house. If the mildew reappears in the house after the stones have been torn out and the house scraped and plastered, if you willfully sin after receiving, if after tasting the heavenly gift, you're again entangled, The priest is to go and examine it. And if the mildew has spread in the house, it is a destructive mildew. The house is unclean. It must be torn down. It's stones, timbers, and all the plasters taken out to an unclean place. You might even say that not one stone would be allowed to rest on another. Jesus inspected the house of God in the first year of his ministry. And in Matthew 21, he inspected it in the last week of his ministry, and he determined that the house was condemned, and he pronounced its destruction, which occurred in A.D. 70. Now, if he would do that to his own house, which is a symbol to the entire world, what will he do to a carnal church? Jeremiah 7 was Jeremiah standing at the gate of God's house. And the warning then is the warning now. Look backwards and see what he's already done and tell me what we're headed for. We need to reform our ways. They didn't listen to Jeremiah. They didn't listen to Jesus. And a whole bunch are not going to listen to me or us either. But some will. And they'll find life. Turn with me to Matthew 21. I want you to see how Jesus refocuses it. And then I'm going to try to bring this to a close. We're at 61 minutes. I hope it's felt like 10. I'm well capable of going for a good 360 minutes, but I think we only have another chapter to cover. Y'all in Matthew 21? In Matthew 21, Jesus makes his triumphal entry. In verse 12, he arrives at the temple. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. You have to love Rabbi Jesus. Rabbi Yeshua is doing what is called stringing pearls. He's referring first to Isaiah 56 about the true intention of God's temple that it would be a house of prayer for all nations. He's referring to it in a way that draws their mind back to the context of why God put his house there. And then he finishes with, you've made it a den of robbers, drawing their attention to what happens when we lose that purpose. I will tear down the house, which is what Jeremiah 7, den of robbers says. King Jesus was not only thoroughly Jewish, he knew the word pretty well. And when he referred, I, I realize, I'm joking. When he referred to a part of it, he expected you to know the rest of it because he thought you would love it. He never dreamed of a day where you would say you love Jesus but not love his word because he is the word. And so when he refers to a house of prayer, he's calling us back to His focus on all nations. When He refers to what they've made it, which is a den of robbers, He's referring us back to, you better pick up my prerogatives or I'm going to tear this thing down. And you cannot go to it today because it is not there. The only difference between the temple of God that we call Zerubbabel's temple or some would call it Herod's temple The only difference between it and many of our grandest cathedrals is the outer building has been torn down, but the presence left a long time ago. I don't ever want that to be true of this building, but more so I don't want it to be true of your life. You want to be filled with the Spirit of God? You can sing more love, more power until the cows come home, and if you don't have God's prerogative, then why would He give you His Power. you hunger and you thirst for souls you hunger and you thirst for the oppressed you fight for his justice and he will pour upon you unlimited power because there's too few doing too much right now if I do it in like three minutes could I bless you with one more practical word about how you live this out there is that alright? anybody gives me five minutes anybody? We got a good couple hours. Then let's uh, we're, we're gonna uh, we we will do this quickly because I I don't want to I don't want to abuse you. I simply want there to be a reform. I would like to say this. I think the Reformation was a clearing of God's house. I'm ready for another one. Anybody else? I think we could use another cleansing. Anybody else? I wouldn't wouldn't mind a little Sturgill like scraping in the house of God because. By the way, when you have to scrape something, is that a pretty pretty sight? I mean, we want God to come in and just remove what if he's got to scrape? You may not realize quite how deeply embedded sin is. There was a point in my life I was standing in Lafayette, Louisiana, hey, and then I'm more close. I'm standing in Lafayette, Louisiana. I sinned and I was brokenhearted by it. I got on my face and I was repenting before the Lord. Can I just be real with you? Tell me, it's okay. Be real, Pastor. And as I thought about that sin, I realized I couldn't think of a year of my Christian walk in which I had not done that. How many years do you have to repeat something before it's pretty embedded? We like to excuse ourselves. We don't like to be scraped by the Lord gut-wrenching, it hurts, there's a tearing. As it's torn out of you, you might feel like you're dying. But weren't you called to that? Isn't that what you say you're going to do every time you take communion? Let's consider what the result of dying for the Lord is. Might be actually living a resurrected life for the Lord. What do you think would change this nation and change the world? The same thing that's brought life out of death For a couple thousand years When the people of God do What He did We don't just need more miracles We don't just need more this, that or the other We need more personal holiness That came through real repentance All the other things will be the byproducts And the fruit of that Okay, last little practical word for you You all still love me? Even if you don't, you got to forgive me, right? I mean, that's, that's what Christians do I would like you to consider this. We have a choice every day whether or not we qualify people or we disqualify people. You could hear this message and say, Pastor's trying to disqualify us. I assure you, what I'm trying to do is bring you into a place where you, the Holy Ghost, and your brothers around you are all mutually assured that you are qualified by God, not disqualified. Anybody ever apply for a loan? Man, it hurts to be disqualified. It really does. And you think, Why? Well, what happened? You know... If you had identity theft, it hurts even more because you didn't deserve the denial that you got. Most of you did not have identity theft. You simply got seen for what you are, (laughs) just like me. Our problems are not usually somebody else's fault. They're usually ours, no matter how hard we make it. And in those moments we're disqualified, you have a choice. You can walk off angry and bitter and say that these people are mean, they're racist, they're whatever it is that you think. I was pretty sure the bankers didn't like white folks. And I got there and met them and said, it can't be that. It must be that they don't like beautiful people. (laughs) Couldn't be me. But you want to figure out how do I get qualified? The Lord is not looking to disqualify you. In John 18 in verse 8, Jesus says this, I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Is there anybody that the first time you read this, you went, yeah! Because, I mean, this is what you want to happen, right? I mean, I'm more than once have cheered at the wrong moment in my life. I want you to get this. Jesus in verse 11 says, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? There's a particular event happening here. The man Malchus, we learn from the other scriptures, was the chief assistant to the high priest. He's the right-hand man of the one who can go behind the curtain. The one who gets to pronounce the unpronounceable name of God. And Peter cut off his ear. According to Leviticus 21, 18 through 21, if you have a physical blemish, and it's very detailed, (laughs) say a part of your ear is missing. You cannot serve as a priest in the Lord's presence. People go, oh, Peter tried to cut off the man's head and he just missed. No, I assure you, he did exactly what he intended to do. Peter was appalled that the servant of the high priest was coming and was going to harm Jesus. And he wanted to show the whole world what a toad this guy was. So he cut off his ear, which would disqualify him from working for God ever again. In my preaching and in my teaching, I have to work so hard not to cross this line. You can tell that I don't think very highly of some of the messages that are very popular today. But if we develop a heart that hopes to disqualify them, it does two things. It makes us feel better about ourselves because in comparison to the guy there with no ear, we look pretty good with our two ears. And it divorces us from the heart of God. He doesn't want to disqualify them. How do you know that? You know it because in Luke 22, starting in verse 49, it says, When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. The goal of scraping the walls is not to disqualify the house. It's that it might be qualified. We can see what is missing so that we can see what needs to be added. The goal is not to condemn. The difference between worldly sorrow and godly conviction It's what it produces in you. Worldly sorrow says, tear down the house. I'm a failure and can never succeed. But godly conviction says, I've done wrong and I'm capable of doing better by the power of Jesus Christ. It's a well-known fact in Jewish history. All the way back 40 years before Jesus was born, two men are fighting for the priesthood and one cuts off the other one's ear. He's disqualified. I say they both disqualified themselves in pointing out things that are wrong and the hope to convict our hearts, let us not cross the line and start blaming our brothers and absolving ourselves. Let's be in the habit of putting ears back on. Let's be in the habit of qualifying people. Amen? This altar is not about condemning people. It's about restoring them because that's what the altar in the heavens are about. There's a day of judgment coming. It has not yet arrived but we want to ready ourselves for it now. Can y'all say amen to that? When you walk out of here today, and we're going to do that very soon, let's not consider what everybody else in the world needs to do differently. Let's bring it right down to home. Let's start with me and my house. Me and my family. Then let's move to my family and my church. And then you begin to pray for your church and your nation. Is that fair? That's how you practically apply a word like this. Tomorrow, what will be different in your life? Could we stand to our feet?